Um, now please stand and uh, we'll read our, our uh, text for preaching this morning coming from uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Uh, You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. In case somebody doesn't know me, my name is Kent Smith. Uh, My wife, Tiffany, is sitting here, and it is my great privilege to bring you the Word of God today. Uh, Let's just begin with another word of prayer. Holy Spirit, I come to you now in in need of your help. Um, My spirit is is often weak. Uh, My flesh is tired. And Lord Jesus, I, I need your gospel right now. I need your gospel this morning. I need your gospel every day. So I, I pray that as we as we come again to, to look at that, you'd press it upon my heart and, and my mind. And I pray that same blessing for each of my brothers and sisters here this morning. Amen. Today is the fourth and final sermon in this little mini-series where we're looking at the gospel. So I just want to say thank you for for being with me during that time. Um, It is a real blessing to me, uh, not because I value pulpit time, uh, but because I get to essentially hear these messages five, six, seven times as, as I prepare them. And so... Uh, you know, for, for me in the past month, I've gotten just inundated with the gospel. Um, and and that, is, that is the real blessing. I think that's the real privilege of, of preaching is just the, the allowance of time that you must make to be in the word. Um, and I'm convinced that's why it's such a holy aspiration. So, uh, But what we've already covered is, is three key points of the gospel. God, man, and Christ. So we looked first at who is God, and we we mentioned he is the holy creator of everyone and everything. Who is man? Well, in short, uh, a creator, a creature rather, that was created good, uh, but is now fallen, sinful, and ruined. Separated from God, separated from his fellow men. And then just last week, we examined Jesus Christ, the God-man, and we saw that through his sacrifice alone can man be made alive again, and that the resurrection of Christ is proof of this in Christ alone. That is a very exclusive claim. And having heard the gospel and learned about the exclusivity of Christ, that he is the door He is the way. He is the good shepherd. Every hearer of the gospel must respond to that. There is no option to abstain here. And that is the final piece of the gospel, the response. And here, I think, is is where evangelical Christianity has really gone off the mark. All right? We, We may have underplayed who God is. We may have... Uh, ignored who man is. We may have misrepresented who Christ is. But here in this final point of the gospel, we have completely redefined the response. This is, this is an invention in the past hundred years. 
you know, I'd say the first generation uh, generation of churches in America, they would say things like, you must repent. You must trust Jesus now for your salvation. And that's pretty offensive. And so I, I think just because of that offense, over time that got softened to, you know what, you just, you need to make a, a decision about your life. You need to decide something here. And that slowly but surely morphed into a phrase you don't find in the Bible, which is accept Jesus. You need to accept Christ. The mentality here is, is as though we could just, if we could get people to, to say a certain prayer or sign a card or raise their hand as a means of accepting Christ, well, well then surely they will go to heaven. We need not worry too much about what happens after that. We'll just, we'll get heaven locked in by having them accept Christ. And then anything else that happens after that in their life is just bonus points. That's just icing on the cake. Once saved, always saved becomes a phrase that is wrongly understood and then wrongly applied. Well, let me tell you, friends, I, I believe that by missing this last mark, we have presented ultimately a different gospel a different gospel, a fictional gospel, because this, this sort of response advocating for it is not something we see reflected in the New Testament. And it is our failure in understanding this aspect of the gospel that has led to many raised hands, many signed commitment cards, but few regenerate souls. The sort of evangelism practiced in the last hundred years has no doubt led to legions of people arriving on judgment day, having once raised their hands in their life, only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. And so, brothers and sisters, we, we cannot afford to miss here. Each piece of the gospel is crucial, including this one. Vodibachum summarizes this well when he says, many a pastor could testify to the anguish experienced by men and women who were manipulated into a decision, he puts decision in quotes, at a young age, only to realize that they never understood the gospel and therefore saw no fruit whatsoever as a result of their decision. And the result of that is often a recurring cycle of doubt, recommitment, rededication, and then more doubt. That's the end of his quote. I think once you understand that you are a sinner in the hands of an angry God and that Christ is the only way to salvation, you must and you do respond to that. There's no neutral option remaining. And I also want to say here, just before we really dig into that, that uh, stopping short of this portion of the gospel, stopping short of letting the hearer know that uh, uh, they are responding to this. That's stopping short of a full gospel presentation. So real briefly, I want to look at three responses. This is again, uh, a fault of mine. I can paint with too broad of a brush, but I, I, in general, I would say there are three responses that, that you can have here. So in your notes, under, under your three main headings here, we're going to see rebel, ruminate, and repent. Rebel, ruminate, and repent. So the first rep response is, is for the person who has heard the gospel to just stay in open rebellion against the sovereign king of the universe. They'll, they'll say, no, thank you. And in denying Christ and his gospel, this person remains under the wrath of God. But, to, uh, but understand this, understand this, to stay silent is to also stay in rebellion against God. To walk away from it unchanged, unthinking, is to stay in rebellion you do not need to encounter some sort of venomous atheist who has all of his reasons to deny God and Christ sharply defined and, and well articulated. You don't need to find that person to find someone who is damned. 
hauntingly, the person who hears the gospel and isn't affected by it at all, who doesn't seem to respond at all. That person is spiritually dead, and that is why they do not respond. Short of a miracle, they are lost. Look them in the eyes while you may. You can weep for them, and you can pray earnestly for their soul. And don't give up on giving that person the gospel either. Many true Christians alive today had to hear the gospel more than once before they came to faith in Christ. And I'm sure many of us here would count ourselves in that number. Now, there will be those uh, who hear the gospel and really don't like the idea of being in that first category, that still rebellious heart. Uh, But they also don't feel like they are quite ready to come to terms with just what the gospel demands. They are still on the way there. They need more time to think, to consider, to search, ruminate is this response. And all that means is to think deeply, uh, but it starts with an R, and I wanted all my points to start with an R. And so now you get to know what ruminate means. It's super important. Uh, If you share the gospel with someone, and this is their initial response, that's not a failure. That's not a failure at all. Uh, It is often best, actually, to give people some time to ruminate on what they have heard rather than try to elicit some some response that you want to see off the bat. Give the Holy Spirit time to do His work. But we do need to make sure that that person knows this is not something they can delay. They ought not take it casually and ruminate on this for the next five, ten years whenever they have spare time. They need, to, they need to really look at this now. This is a pressing matter. There's nothing more urgent than this because tomorrow is not promised. And to die while you are ruminating is to die without hope. So what is the response to the gospel that we do want to hear? I recommend we tell people to do what Jesus told people to do, which is a crazy idea. Let's go to Mark. Matthew, Mark. Just chapter one. Mark one fourteen. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When we finish telling people about Christ and we urge them to respond, let us not urge them to respond by a raise of their hand. Let us not urge them to respond by going and seeing a counselor. And let us not urge them to sign a card. And certainly let's not urge them to meet us at church next Sunday. If we presented the gospel rightly and the Holy Spirit is at work in the soul of the person, bringing them into new life like we talked about last week, then what we want to tell this person to do in response to the gospel is repent and believe. That's the response. Repent and believe. And we've softened this too much to the point where we lead people away from salvation rather than towards it. Having encountered too many spiritually dead people rejecting the gospel, we concluded that the gospel is too harsh. And so people, you know, they they don't want to repent and believe. They don't want Jesus Christ both as Lord and Savior. Savior insinuates I've done something wrong that I need saving from. I don't want to hear that. And I certainly don't want a Lord in my life apart from me. No natural person wants to hear either of these two things. And so what we do is is we say, well, let's negotiate with them a little bit. Let's soften it up. Let's make it more appealing to their pride. Let's paint God not as sovereign king, and how many of you have heard this, but as a desperate father, lonely, missing his children. Let's paint God as needing our help 
as if God is powerless to save, that he mourns over that fact. And we can just ask people to do the right thing and let God into their hearts. Friends, that is not the reality of the situation. A.W. Tozer says this best. He says, we are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. And that ultimatum is repent and believe or stay under the wrath of God and face it on your own merit. This is the ultimatum Christ gave in the passage we just read. It is the same one Peter gives in Acts 2. Paul gives it in Acts 17. James highlights it in his epistle. Uh, The author of Hebrews emphasizes it. The New Testament is so clear on this, it's, it's hard to see really how we strayed so far from it. It seems to me that if we are relying on some sort of manipulation techniques to to slowly ease people, to trick them into the idea of becoming Christians uh, rather than looking for the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating their heart, then we've stopped short of acknowledging the miracle that actually happens in the gospel. There's all the difference in the world between the work of apologetics and changing the gospel to accommodate the still twisted desires of unregenerate hearts. And in that way, we work apart from the Holy Spirit rather than with him. And we have no reason to suspect or expect that we would see genuine results from unbiblical methods. So what does it mean to repent and believe then? Well, to repent is to turn from sin. You have sin over here. You have the holy God over here. They are opposed from each other, opposite of each other. You cannot face them both at the same time. If you are facing sin, then you are turned from God. If you are facing God, then you have turned from sin. To repent then is to change your position, to turn from sin and to God. Peter describes this uh, sort of repentance in Acts 3. So let's just go forward in our Bibles a little bit to Acts. Acts chapter 3. I always felt it was cheating when the pastor had all of his stuff bookmarked, especially when you get to like those, those smaller prophets in the Old Testament. So I try not to do that, and then we just will race to see who gets there first. Acts 3. 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. He goes on from there. Repent, Peter says. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And so be certain of this right now, where there is no repentance, where there is no turning back, there is no blotting out of sins. That is what repentance looks like. It's turning away from sin, turning to God. And this willingness to repent is not made possible by some gimmick or or catchy sales tactic, but it's made possible by the Holy Spirit working in that person, convicting them of their sin, and then reordering their heart and their mind to understand what they need to do. And then we must truly believe. First, repent and believe. We must have faith. Belief and faith are are two words that get used a lot in today's culture, uh, but not in the same way the Bible uses them. How often have you heard faith described as like an irrational belief in something? Like, I, I believe it regardless of the facts. Someone says, oh, you can't possibly believe 
I don't know, pick your favorite thing. Loch Ness Monster. You didn't see Loch Ness Monster out there on the lake. And you're like, well, I have faith that I saw the Loch Ness Monster out there on the lake, right? Well, that's not faith. That's just silly. Um, you know, faith is, is really better understood as acting on belief, right? It's an easy thing. Like if I take this chair, right? It's an e easy thing for me to say, I believe that chair can support my weight. I believe that I could sit in that chair and take a load off of my feet. But if I won't sit in it, I don't have faith. And pointing out the difference um, belief, between belief and genuine saving faith, I think one of the best passages for that is in James. But again, if, if I believe that I can sit in that chair, and I tell you I believe I can sit in that chair, but I refuse to, I don't have faith, and you have a valid reason to doubt if I actually believe. But let's turn to James real quick. Go to James 2. Past Paul's letters, past Hebrews. We'll find James. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, then what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So here James is pointing out the difference between just belief and a genuine saving faith. This is a major problem springing up from how we have done evangelism in our time. We have many people who profess faith, but few who possess faith. And the difference matters for all of eternity. Look at what James says here. He says, even the demons believe, but that belief doesn't save them. They're still demons. Knowledge of who God is isn't working for their salvation. It only causes them to shake in fear. The difference between someone who does not possess faith, but only professes faith, and these demons that James speaks of here, the only difference is the demons at least know their theology well enough to know the trouble that they're in. They have the good sense to shake in fear because their knowledge never became faith and never produced repentance, and they know exactly what that means for them. Paul makes this clear in Romans 10.9. We don't need to turn there. I'm sure it's a, a verse many of you have committed to memory. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, at first blush, this sounds really simple. It sounds like the kind of statement that would encourage the kind of evangelism that gets people to respond just by raising hands and signing cards. But listen, loved ones, there, there's all the difference between declaring something with your mouth alone and also believing it in your heart. One of those I can do very easily. One of them I need God to do for me. And this is, this is the crux of the issue of our desires that we spoke about uh, a couple sermons ago. You and I cannot change our hearts. We cannot change our desire, but the Holy Spirit can. When we genuinely put our trust in Christ... Uh, we, we aren't simply making a decision. The Holy Spirit is working a miracle. He gives us new hearts, new desires, and that is regeneration. That is what it means to be born again, to be born from above. That is what baptism symbolizes. The old us, the us that was under Adam has died, and we are now made alive as, as new 
creatures, new creation with new hearts, a new nature, and one that is captivated to Christ. Just very quickly want to quote A.W. Pink here. He says, regeneration, not a decision. Regeneration is indispensably necessary before any soul can enter heaven. In order to love spiritual things, a man must be made spiritual. The natural man may hear about them, have a correct idea of the doctrine of them, but he cannot love them nor find his joy in them. None can dwell with God and be eternally happy in his presence until a radical change has been wrought in him, a change from sin to holiness. And I'll say more on desire in just a moment, but you see how salvation, if taken that way, if taken scripturally, salvation depends entirely on God. It takes a miracle. In the same way, Jesus shouted to a dead Lazarus, Lazarus, and he commands him, commands him to come out of that tomb. And a living Lazarus does just that. So too does the Holy Spirit command a dead soul inside of a man to come out of that darkness and live again. So we see is the Holy Spirit who ultimately brings about repentance and faith. But faith in what exactly? What am I placing my trust in? Think about me in the chair analogy, right? What am I putting my trust in in that scenario? Is, is, am I trusting how strong my faith in the chair is before I sit in it? Is, is that why I think it will support my weight because I have faith that it will? Now, in, in salvific terms, it is the finished work of Christ that I'm putting my trust in. A faith, a reliance on his sacrifice rather than my own merit. I trust that despite the allegations of Satan, which true or false as they may be, I can run to Christ and be safe there. It is the person and work of Christ I am trusting. And if you get that, do you see how secure salvation is? It isn't the strength of my faith. My faith is often weak. It ebbs and flows. My salvation does not. Salvation is through faith. That is the medium. But salvation is not in faith. Salvation is in the object of faith, and salvation is in Christ Jesus. That chair will support me because of who it is, what it is. Christ saves me because of who he is and what he has done. So lean on him. Have a seat. He promises you rest. But we must make the response of repentance and belief, faith, trust. We must make this clear to the person who is hearing the gospel. There is no easy believism here. To genuinely repent and believe is going to come at a real, personal, and high cost. It will mean denying yourself to follow Christ in obedience. Sins you once enjoyed, sins that your flesh may still enjoy, you will now be making war against. You'll do whatever it takes to put them to death. And that process for many is going to mean the loss of friends. It's going to mean the loss of family members. In some places, like Morocco, it's going to mean open persecution. It will even mean foregoing good things in your life that you once enjoyed because now you must pursue the best things in life. Things you once enjoyed that you could still enjoy right now without any sin may no longer have a place in your life because as each of us has limited time, we now have to pursue the greatest things and all of those are in Christ. It's what we desire. And people are going to think that's weird. Those not born again don't understand the new creation. It is 
foreign to them and foreign to their natures. And brothers and sisters, that's it. That's how simple and yet impossibly miraculous the gospel is. Our task is to proclaim it. The Holy Spirit alone can and will do the work of bringing the dead back to life through the surpassing beauty of Jesus Christ, redeeming sinful man and bringing them back to God. And we must proclaim that good news. That's the method. That's the method. It's the only method. Uh, We've said this before here in this church, but that phrase, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words, that's just nonsensical. The very nature of the gospel is a proclamation of a message. Until you have delivered the message, you have not fulfilled your Christian duty. And we ought to be ultimately encouraged by this. If you think about the sermon series that we just went through, if, if you examine the gospel, do you see how it's Trinitarian in nature? Each person of the Godhead is working in salvation. You do not need to be clever. You do not need the latest methods or tactics, and you don't need to compromise with a sinful world. You just need to be faithful. Just be faithful. You need to be ready to give a reason for the hope within you. You need only to be able to articulate the very gospel that is working in your heart for your good right now. That is the only piece of this that God has privileged us to participate in. The rest he keeps. And praise him for that, because if salvation is all of God, I don't have to fret if I presented the gospel well enough or if my shortcomings in raising my children is causal to a lack of their faith. Instead, I get to go to sleep and sleep well at night, knowing that God swings straight with a crooked bat, that he can use my fumbling presentation of the gospel to work in the heart of someone, calling them into life and into salvation. God is good. So let's be faithful. I want to use the balance of my time. You thought we were going to be done early. I want to use the balance of my time to address just a couple thoughts uh, that almost certainly will be going through someone's mind. So uh, first, this first person might hear me talking about the works of faith, actually sitting in the chair rather than just talking about it or or giving up good things for better things, which all involves self-control and and discipline. And you may hear that and instantly object, decrying legalism. That guy up there is a legalist. Most people who use the word legalism today uh, don't actually know what it means. They haven't even considered a working definition of it. Now, I could do a, a whole sermon series on that alone Uh, But let me just very quickly break this down for you. Because if we're going to go on living the Christian life, we cannot be stopped or, or barricaded by these sort of false accusations. Let me ask a question. Um, is reading your Bible every morning legalism? And you can just tell me with head nods. I got a lot of no's. I would tell you it depends. It depends, right? Depends on why you are doing this. Why are you doing this? Legalism does not lie in the act, but in the heart. Legalism does not lie in the what, but in the why. If you are doing something like reading your Bible every morning because you think, oh boy, if I, if I just do X, Y, and Z, then God must save me. He won't have a choice. He'll be legally obligated to let me into heaven. He will owe me. That is the why behind a legalistic act. But the why behind self-control and discipline is not that. Let me give an example. You'd be, you'd be hard-pressed uh, hard to find a marathon runner who thinks little of discipline and self-control, but not for its own sake. By nature, he'd rather sleep in, he'd rather eat pizza, 
but he forgoes those things willingly. Now, why does he do that? He does it because he loves the race. He wants to win the race. He wants to run the race well. And he would do anything to that end. And not at a single point is that going to feel like legalism to him. He would not understand that accusation when you say that. He will train and train and train for just a single day. It'll mean getting up early. He doesn't want to get up early. He wants to sleep. But he has a greater love in his life than sleep now. It'll mean eating the best food that he can. Junk food is absolutely off the menu. But even the things that are okay, but aren't going to fuel him the way he needs to to run this race, he's done with those things too. He wants only the best things because he has a singular objective now, a singular passion. I think that's a terrible analogy because everybody hates running. No one has ever actually enjoyed running. So let me give you a different one. Uh, Consider the young man getting ready for a date with a girl he very much wants to impress. He may spend hours getting ready, ensuring everything is just right, that he looks nice, now, that's not legalism, is it? He's not, he's not doing this because if he ties just the right knot in his tie, this girl is now legally obligated to marry him, right? That's nonsense. That's not why he's doing this. He's doing it because he wants her to be pleased. It's that simple. He wants her to be pleased. His desire for her overshadows these tasks that would otherwise be dull, burdensome, or just likely unaccomplished. Have you seen single guys? They're not well put together all the time. But as soon as that girl comes into their life, changes everything. We don't find particular joys in these acts, but in the person for whom we perform the act. We read some of Titus at the beginning of the service and I'll just, I'll go back to there now. Let's just go back to Titus. If you turn back in your Bibles, just a few pages. Other side of Hebrews and a few of Paul's small letters. We read from 11 to 15 this morning. Let me read the paragraph just in front of that. Titus 2, 1 through 10. And just, just listen to how many times Paul says to be And this is Paul, right? Writer of Galatians, the anti-legalist here. Listen how many times Paul says we should be self-controlled. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. The word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And why is all this possible? In verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. It is the grace of God. It is the reordering of the desires in my heart, turning from sin into God, that makes this not legalism. Do not throw out self-control when it is actually a means of grace because somebody called you a legalist. I can assure you, because Scripture assures me, that no one has ever accidentally become holier. Put your hand to the plow, because Christ is worthy of the work. 
Now, another person who has been in church their whole life may have sat through these four sermons and is now saying to themselves, I'm not sure I'm a Christian at all. Well, one of two things is happening here. And knowing just a little bit about the people in this room in particular, uh, I would say that there's a good chance you're a Christian and you're just struggling with assurance right now. So let me say a few things to that person. First, many a good and faithful Christian has struggled with assurance. You are not the first and you are not the only. They have struggled with knowing that they are saved. You are in the company of people with very tender hearts. And that's a good place to be. But you do not want to, and you should not, stay in this questioning frame of mind. The devil is greatly pleased to keep Christians in a doubting state of mind, not because it's the unforgivable sin, but because the time you spend doubting is time you don't spend spreading the gospel. It's time you don't spend encouraging your brothers and sisters. It's, it's opportunity cost. You've, you've lost some of your mission as you focus on this distraction. He nullifies your Christian witness in this way. So let me give you some remedies for doubt just to boost your sense of assurance. One of my favorite professors gave me this outline, so I'm, I'm indebted to him. Uh, but this is a vast improvement over telling someone, hey, remember that time you raised your hand in that one service? You're definitely a Christian. No, this is, this is leaps and bounds better than that. This, you'll, you'll find some real assurance here. Now, the order here matters too, all right? I would work from top to bottom in these things. Number one, when you're struggling with your assurance, number one, think about the mighty acts of God the Father in your life both in your life and in scripture. Look at the incredible things God has done. He has saved in the past. He certainly can and will save again. Number two, think on the promises of Christ. So first I had the, the acts of God. Now I have the promises of Christ. It is not your strength that saves you. Remember how I said salvation is of God, that he calls us out of darkness. You do not cling to Christ in the storm. That would be a terrifying notion. We should doubt our ability to do that. No, praise God, Christ holds on to us. Christ holds on to us. And he has never lost a single one of his sheep. We cling to his promises, not through the strength of our faith, but through the person of Jesus Christ. And Christ is advocating for you to his father, even now, trust him, trust his promises, make use of the rest that he offers. Number three, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Acts of God, promises of Christ, and now the testimony of the Holy Spirit. There have no doubt been times where you've had a sense of the Holy Spirit working in you, assuring you of your, your sonship or your daughtership in Christ, assuring you that you are a child of God. Think back to those times. Just think back to those times. Those were real Number four, think on the promises of Scripture. All the promises in Scripture are there for you to claim, including the peace that God gives. The peace that God gives. Now, only if you have done all four of those things do you come to the fifth one here. Fifth and finally, do examine your present faith and obedience. In fact, this is something we should do regularly, right? In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says we ought to examine ourselves to see if we are really of the faith. Well, that is the opposite of easy believism, isn't it? Examine yourself regularly. 
regularly evaluate yourself and your spiritual state. And and don't misunderstand me. Once again, in, in a group like this, you know, if you're thinking, I'm not really a Christian, you may just be struggling with assurance. But it is absolutely possible to go to church, go to Bible studies, and even preach the Bible from a pulpit and not truly be a Christian. None of those things saves you. Being born again by the Spirit, that is salvation. So how can you examine yourself? Well, I mean, I, I recommend personally reading 1 John. I think 1 John is a great um, evaluation tool. In that short letter, John clearly states several different ways to know if you are in the faith. So read 1 John, and when the apostle describes someone who is in Christ or not, then just pause and honestly ask yourself, how does my life look in relation to those things? Does my life show the habit, the overall progression of those things? Or does it not? And recognize that if you do that and, and line after line, the things John describes as a Christian, they don't apply to you. Well, you could very possibly be in real danger. It could be you who has sat in church their whole life, who has only committed little sins, who once raised their hand at a youth rally, but by the Apostle John's estimation has never truly repented, never truly believed, never truly been born again. It could be you who hears, depart from me, I never knew you. The way is narrow. Your time is short. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent and put your trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, its, its ability to, to cut right to the soul of things, to the soul of a man. I pray that in, in seeing what your word lays out as, as proper response to the gospel, that we would all be renewed in, in steadfastness towards repentance and actively engaged by your grace in our own sanctification and that we would leave here ready to do the work that you've given us to do, that, that great commission. We might glorify you by making disciples through the proclamation of your gospel and, and not just leaving them where we found them as, as, as if uh, an evangelist came to the prodigal son and, and preached the gospel to him and told him he could stay in the mud pit. But instead, draw him out. Have him run towards you. Lord Jesus, I pray for the people in this room. Help us run that race well together that we might all arrive to judgment day ready to glorify the name of Christ. We ask these things for your son's sake. Amen. Thank you, brother. When we come, as we do each week, to the Lord's table, as we take time to process the, the wonder of the gospel of God from His Word. And this morning, just the simple question is, how have you responded to the gospel? Now, in this group, there, there is no doubt in my mind that everybody sitting here has heard the gospel. We've had four weeks in a row where that has been the sole focus and it is a continuing focus in everything that we teach and preach here. So how have you responded to the gospel? Have you responded with, with obedience and faith? Have you responded in rebellion? Or are you still just unsure and thinking and trying to process and I would echo with my brother that today is the day to believe. Tomorrow is, until it's here for us, it's a fantasy. It's not guaranteed. 
It's not promised. We have no claim on tomorrow. We only have claim on today, this very moment. So how have you responded to the gospel? And if you have responded to the gospel in faith and you are walking in obedience with Christ, then I invite you now to come up to to grab of the elements and then in just a few moments we'll pray and take them together. Father, we are so thankful for this tangible reminder of what your Son has done for us, of the cost of our salvation. May his call to repent and to believe be clear in our minds and our hearts and and guide us, to drive us out of desire to honor and glorify him by living in obedience, by living as he has called us to, by sacrificing all we might lose in this world. Father, make us ready to receive this. May it enrich and enliven, encourage our souls because we understand the truth that is represented in these actions. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Read in Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he went on to say, I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So as our souls are encouraged and restored, as we take this physical action, remind ourselves of what it means to be in Christ, that we are taking his sacrifice to ourselves. Also be encouraged to look forward with eagerness. There should be nothing in this world that is so dear to us, though, that we would not be excited and are not excited the prospect of at this moment or the next moment or tomorrow to be able to be with our Lord. There is nothing here that can compare. We should have a continual prayer in our lives that come, Lord Jesus, come, because we are excited to rejoice with him in his kingdom.